Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a tempting selection from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, Aleppo's descent from riches to rubble, the real reasons for Hungary's referendum and how a stealthy bit of business in the printer industry has left people crying over spilt ink. But first, why they're wrong was our cover line this week. Globalization's critics proclaim that only the elite benefit, yet closing doors and becoming insular will cause great harm to the poor most of all. Our cover leader explored how the world is turning its back on free trade, but why it's wrong to do so. Donald Trump, incoherent on so many fronts, is clear in this area. Unfair competition from foreigners has destroyed jobs at home. Yet on this topic, even his rival might agree with him. To her discredit... Hillary Clinton now denounces the TPP, a pact she helped negotiate. While over in Germany... Tens of thousands took to the streets earlier this month to march against a proposed trade deal between the European Union and the United States. The backlash against trade is just one symptom of a pervasive anxiety about the effects of open economies. While many concerns contain elements of truth, turning against globalisation as a whole is the wrong course to take, we argued. There is a world of difference between improving globalisation and reversing it. The idea that globalisation is a scam that benefits only corporations and the rich could scarcely be more wrong. Indeed, the worst off benefit far more from open trade than the rich do. A study of 40 countries found that the richest consumers would lose 28% of their purchasing power if cross-border trade ended. But those in the bottom tenth would lose 63%. And openness brings a whole host of benefits. Migrants improve not just their own lives, but the economies of host countries. European immigrants who arrived in Britain since 2000 have been net contributors to the Exchequer, adding more than £20 billion, that's $34 billion, to the public finances between 2001 and 2011. You can read our special report in defence of globalisation, along with all of our coverage in this week's issue. Our keen words urging the world to keep their doors open might fall on deaf ears in one European country. The lead note in our Europe section this week explored the whys and wherefores of Hungary's impending referendum on the EU migrant quota. Our conclusion? It's more populist pomp. At issue is the EU's emergency response mechanism, adopted in September 2015, under which 160,000 of the migrants who began surging into Europe last year are to be shared out between member states according to quotas. Of which Hungary's quota is a whopping 1,294. So it's fair to say that some ulterior motives may be hovering behind the polling booths. The referendum is largely a popularity ploy by Viktor Orban, Hungary's populist prime minister, and will have no legal effect. Polls predict a comfortable majority of voters will choose no. Nevertheless, the government is making its views apparent. 
it has plastered posters calling for a no vote across the country. Did you know that Brussels is planning to relocate a town's worth of illegal immigrants in Hungary? asks one. But at least the scary posters are giving the opposition something to latch on to. The most spirited resistance has come from a fringe group called the Two-Tailed Dog Party. It has crowdfunded advertising posters satirising the government's Did You Know campaign. Did you know a tree may fall on your head? asks one. Leaving Hungary to answer those questions, flipping a little deeper into this week's issue, we come across a place in the Middle East which may well be asking how it arrived at its current state. The Syrian city of Aleppo has become a focal point in the country's bitter civil war. Yet, as an article explained, it's long been a vital nexus in the region and one that's been fought over for centuries. Aleppo's location was always a blessing and a curse. It lay at the fork on the Silk Road where goods went south to Africa and the Middle East or north into Eurasia. Merchants milked the proceeds, helped by carrier pigeons from Baghdad bringing daily updates on shifting commodity prices. But the richer it became, the larger the spoils of war. In the 10th century, it shifted from Christian Byzantine to Shia Fatimid to Sunni Abbasid hands, sometimes every few days. Merchants nodded, checked the wind and kept out of the fray. Traders displayed pragmatism in the face of relentless occupation. Unlike Damascus, which traditionally was more devout, Aleppo embraced Turkish-speaking Ottoman rulers as readily as French imperialists. Indeed, it's long drawn in people from far and wide. The Prophet Muhammad had likened the gardens around Damascus to paradise, but Abu al-Tayyab al-Mutanabi, considered the greatest of the classical Arabic poets, deemed them merely a route to something even better. Aleppo, he wrote, was his destination. Tragically, the wealth and grandeur is being reduced to poverty and rubble, first by the Syrian fighting in Aleppo and now by Russian bombing. Our Money Talks podcast this week explored the packages that aid agencies have been sending in to alleviate food shortages for refugees across the country. Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, weighed up the pros and cons of sending in cash-based help rather than food. So there haven't been that many studies comparing unlimited cash and the vouchers, but there have been studies comparing the cash-based help and the food in kind. Uh, And they find that if you give people food in kind, then that boosts the number of calories they consume. So you'll you'll get more energy to the refugees. But uh, if you give them cash-based measures, then the diversity of their diet increases. Our Money Talk show is available each Tuesday and brings you all the latest developments across business, finance and economics. Heading back to our print edition, an article in the business section explains how a stealthy bit of business in the printer industry has left a blot on the landscape. It took a while to join the dots. On the morning of September 13th, owners of several types of HP OfficeJet, a printer designed for the home and for smaller offices that is manufactured by HP Inc., an American seller of printers and computers, switched on their machines. But something wasn't quite right. The night before, they had been able to print with any sort of ink cartridge. Since that day, only machines containing original HP cartridges have churned out copies. And the cause of this ink blockade? The deployment by HP of a firmware update 
that blocks rival ink. HP wasn't just trying to enrage printer users still further, it had reason to act as it did. Though its printer's business remains profitable, revenues fell by 14% in the year to July. Rivals in the market for ink squeeze margins. The ink wars of the printer industry will no doubt leave many of us shouting even louder at our inanimate office companions. But will they be able to answer back or will they take offence? Perhaps not right now, but computers are becoming more attuned to our voices and virtual assistants are steadily making their way into our lives. On our science and technology podcast, Babbage, our technology editor, Ludwig Siegler, explained the potential privacy issues of smarter computers living so close at hand. I mean, you, you basically, in, 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 in former times, you had the spooks putting microphones in, into your living room. Now you, you do it yourself. <laughs> and, and, of course, Amazon has put some safeguards in there. So the Echo microphone doesn't switch on if you don't say Alexa. But, I mean, as we know, these technologies, uh, if they can get hacked, they will get hacked. We've been doing a little intelligence gathering of our own this week with our ears on the ground in America. As the presidential election draws closer, we thought we'd give you a little taste of things heard behind the scenes, or indeed in front of them, on the campaign trail. First, Donald Trump gives us a reason for his poor debate performance. My microphone was terrible. I wonder, was it set up that way on purpose? Yes, that's my excuse too. Ted Cruz's former spokesman denounces his endorsement of Mr Trump. I'm just trying to get this Cruz sticker off my car. Vincente Fox, Mexico's former president, finds himself in an awkward situation. Today I received an email from at real Donald Trump asking for money. Of course, I had an answer for him. And following the first televised debate between Democratic and Republican candidates, the police department in Lawrence, Kansas, appealed for calm. Being mad at a presidential candidate in a debate is not a reason to call 911. Heavens no, but you can scribble down your thoughts in an email to us instead, radio at economist.com, or contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 